all the time, as well as Russia and uh, Ukraine. And we see a world on fire. Uh, Syria, we see um, China making its noises as well. Uh, There are big problems throughout the world. And um, we're we're in trouble. This this world is really in trouble. And as uh, Peggy Noonan said in the Wall Street Journal, um, the world is disappointing President Obama. You know, this, this man, um, the way he operates and the way he had um, moved forward with his whole agenda in the administration is that everyone will line up behind him, not just the America, you understand, but the entire world will, uh, be, will become Obamaized, and uh, everyone will see the light because they've got such a great president named Barack Obama, and he will uh, take care of everything, and everyone will now understand you know, with the reset button, so to speak, not just of Russia, but the entire world and all the understandings among the uh, among the major players in the world. But here we are, five and a half years later. How did this turn out? Everything is in disarray. Everything's falling apart. And uh, the good news is, of course, that our military is drastically reduced in the process. So, you know, I'm sure that, that helps a lot. Oh, what's that you say? It doesn't help at all? Oh, right, right. Having a smaller military actually compounds the problem. So, it, it, look, this begs the whole issue. And, and, and another major thing we're seeing, and this is what I kind of want to drill down on, is anti-Semitism. Look, anti-Semitism is not just a Jewish issue. It may seem so. I mean, after, war, after all, anti-Semitism is associated solely with Jews, but anti-Semitism is always the first of things to worry about. It is the beginning, the, the, the canary in the coal mine, right? When you, I mean, to, to explain a little bit further, uh, the, the coal miners used to send down canaries in their coal mines because they were very sensitive for gas. And if there was gas, the canaries would die, and then the coal miners would know, let's not hang around here because we're going we're gonna to die ourselves eventually. So when you say that somebody is, you know, or some group of people is the canary in the coal mine, it means that bad things will start happening to you as well. So the Jews in many ways are the canaries in the coal mine. And when you see anti-Semitism rising throughout the world, as we are now seeing in Europe and otherwise, you should be worried. Because the Jews, as I said, are the canaries in the coal mine. We're seeing um, all sorts of chants in France and England and otherwise. And now, for the first time in my life, we're seeing anti-Semitism demonstrations, big demonstrations in America. Just recently, uh, two days ago, there was uh, Jews had to be evacuated in vans during a, um, a rally that was pro-Hamas, I suppose. And I've never seen anything like it. Um, we have to worry about these things. Now, uh, you know, anti-Semitism, I used to think that it was a thing of the past. When I was uh, 
in, in high school in the 70s, they talked about anti-Semitism, and we were led to believe it was pretty much a, a thing of the past. And I was very pleased to see it, and, and I thought, okay, well, you know, no more anti-Semitism. Isn't that great? Being a Jew as well, and, and, and that the America was embracing its Jews uh, would be the norm, and, and, and everyone would be happy. Um, you, you get this sense, um, I suppose, like many liberals do, that somehow things are of the past, and that uh, human nature changes. And it, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And, you know, for, this is the first time in my life where I'm really beginning to witness serious anti-Semitic actions in France in particular, and even in Germany, again, to some extent, lesser extent in England, but even now in the United States, as I just mentioned. And you, you wonder, you know, what, what is going to come of all this? You know, it's, it's really a, it's a very unique moment in history. And is it going to get worse? And unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. It's going to get worse. As we get less and less strong, America gets less and less strong, uh, people will feel more um, ambivalent about Israel. They'll say, you know, why are we, you know, why are we supporting this, this small little country called Israel when we have so many crazies out there that want to, uh, that apparently want to destroy Israel? Let's, uh, you know, they, they, they seem to be on the winning side, at least from a numbers point of view. There's so many of them. And this was the subject of a book that has recently come out, and I'm, unfortunately I forget the author's name, but uh, the book is called How David Became Goliath, and it's about, about Israel and how Israel basically took on a pariah reputation following the Six-Day War, not because of the Six-Day War per se, but because of a variety of many other factors. And one of them was that there's just so many of these bad guys meaning the Palestinians and the Arab terrorists and, and the Islamists. And there's, you know, we, there's just no way we can make up the numbers. We can't beat them on the numbers. And they're growing faster than we are. And so as a consequence, um, people in Europe certainly just got terrified when they saw terrorism. They didn't know what to do with it. And they just said, fine, fine, we'll join you. We'll join your ranks. We won't be supportive of Israel. And, um, and while we're at it, we won't be so supportive of Jews either. You know, we hope they don't get beaten up and such. But, you know, if you do, we'll, it won't be that big a deal. And that's what happens with anti-Semitism, isn't it? It just has always been this way. It's uh, people just turn a blind eye. Mind you, it's not necessarily governments that have been anti-Semitic. It's always been the people that have been anti-Semitic. And, by the way, this is part of one of the major reasons... Uh, that Jews are liberal. If, if you define liberal, the, the, the primary core of being liberal is that they love government, right? The reason why is that the Jews historically always felt that they could fight anti-Semitism in Russia, in Germany, and otherwise by way of the government. The government was the answer to their problems. The government could stop the bad guys. The government was daddy and mommy you know, stopping the school schoolyard bully from beating them up, or the big brother, if you want. Um, and so they had this attitude that government was good. And then they come to this country where all of a sudden it's about limited government. And they got spooked, and they said, whoa, 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 limited government? Who's going to protect us? But they forgot that America is a very different story. It's not an anti-Semitic nation. It's, 
when you have a truly democratic society, a, a God-fearing society, you're not going to have anti-Semitism, not in a democracy. So, but, uh, you know, I wonder what's going to happen in America. I wonder what's going to happen in Europe. Um, certainly, we know th- bad things are happening all throughout the world. This, these are not good times. I, I just wonder. Um, there are images that I'm seeing uh, on, on the news and otherwise that people are throwing out the word Jew a lot. These are, these are bad signs because, as I said on my Sunday show, um, this is a problem that's coming to a theater near you, right? Yeah, they used to at least say Zionist or Israeli. Right. Now they say Jew. Yeah, they're, they're pretty direct about it now. Uh, and, and to some extent, you know, we, we, we don't hide behind it. I mean, Israel's a Jewish nation. It's, it's, a, it's a nation full of Jews. Yeah, but they didn't feel comfortable saying, we hate the Jews, kill the Jews. Right. Because they understood in the politically correct world that didn't look good on TV. Yeah. Now they're not afraid anymore of, of looking that way. They're not afraid. And the other thing is I always thought the big um, vulnerability, say the campus anti-Semites, the BDS, the Muslim Student Association, the pro-Palestinian movement, movements that took place at UC Irvine, UCLA, Ohio State, wherever, always had a big uh, uh, Achilles heel, which was, what if, God forbid for them, that some real neo-Nazis showed up to join them with the skinheads, the tattoos, the Nazi flags, the Heil Hitler, the 88, the SS salutes. Right, what about... What, what happened, yeah. you know, well, now they're not afraid anymore because I've seen pictures of a lot of these protests from like Tampa, St. Petersburg, Florida, for instance, and they themselves are bringing Nazi imagery to their own protests now. They're bringing pictures of, of Auschwitz and saying to the Jews or the counter-protesters, hey, get in the oven. They're not afraid of saying that anymore. And yeah. that's a very bad sign. Yeah. History ebbs and flows, as they say, and... History certainly repeats itself over and over again. And, and we've seen this from the Bible. We've seen it from history beyond the Bible. That uh, where you let evil flourish, then evil flourishes. Uh, and, and it takes hold. And it, be, and it changes the very dynamic of society. Where, you know, it, it just like, like, like the, um, the reputation of, of Israel has changed in the past 40, 50 years. Uh, not rightly, of course, but it just simply has. Things can change in a moment's notice when it comes to the Jews. Now, here in America, it might be a little bit of a, a difference because uh, yes, we have Christians here. We have we have re- you know, true good Christians who are truly in love with Israel, which is great, and they love the Jews for that matter. But and we also have a lot of entrenchment among the Jews uh, in American society, from an entertainment point of view, from a political point of view. From a uh, culturally, uh, from a civilization point of view, but all it takes is a little bit of fear, uh, a fear to say that you're Jewish, and then suddenly things turn. They could turn overnight, almost overnight, and it, it just the right. You know, you you ask yourself, how can it be that uh, America would ever be such a, an animal? It'll never happen in America. Well, I'm not saying that that there'll be a sort of Holocaust-type event in, in America. But I, I can say, because of the uniqueness of anti-Semitism, that prevalent anti-Semitism can definitely happen in America. There are a couple of factors that will have to be in play. There has, there, there'll have to be a, 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 a culture of fear, for one thing, which is not hard to do. You can create that. I mean, something absurd, I don't know, I'm going to invent something out of my 
my tushy right now. But for example, let's say you wanted to um, you use the IRS to target, I don't know, conservative groups, for example. I mean, that would be, I know that's absurd. That but would never happen. It would never happen in this country, but I'm just saying, you know, the head of the IRS may very well, you know, create, um, I don't know, emails and such that direct, um, it, uh, you know, her subordinates to, uh, to target individuals and, and groups who uh, don't think like the administration want them to think. Anyway, I mean, obviously that's a an imp, imp, totally implausible scenario. Yeah, or another one is um, a uh, uh, a um, epidemic of child molestation erupting from a uh, uh, private uh, preschool in Manhattan Beach called McMartin, where the entire because this happened where my wife lived there, when the entire town went mad. Right. Insanity over seeing child molesters under every rock and every tree. Right. When it actually never happened. Right. And nothing of the sort and happened. It's or like, wasn't there in France the uh, Dreyfus trial? Yeah, the that Dreyfus affair. Dreyfus yeah. affair. Well, that was one of the main reasons for the creation of Israel, by the way. But it, it was a launching pad. But anyway, I mean, I, I was obviously being facetious about the IRS emails because it actually is happening. It's a culture of fear. And you're talking in the McMartin thing about something that was truly without basis. But the IRS emails are with basis. And um, there are other culture of, of fears that, that the, uh, I think that this administration are trying to create. Um, they, um, that they certainly argue that uh, those wascally Republicans are trying to keep people poor, uh, that they're trying to entrench themselves you know, with money, uh, that they, they want to destroy all government programs that would otherwise treat them fairly. Aren't they such good people? And force women to have babies if they have sex. There you go. That's right. And, and, and back alley abortions and all those, those terrible... It's a culture of fear. To say nothing, by the way, of global warming. Yeah, I'd even go a step further, which is what I think the great firewall against anti-Semitism taking hold in America like it is elsewhere is the firewall of American exceptionalism. Now, let's just assume, and I know this will never happen, you have a president who publicly scoffs at the idea that America is the exception to the instability of the world. And America is the idea that America is an exceptional place, i.e. different than the rest of the world with how civilized with it, it is compared to the normal state of affairs in the rest of the world is a foolish idea. And let's just assume for a second you have people who are fanatic followers of this president, not that that would ever happen. Oh, no, of course not. Who start to believe that and spread it to others to the point where the entire culture and society starts believing that America is the same as every other nation. Well, then why shouldn't anti-Semitism take place? But we all know that that would never happen. It would never happen. No, no. Thank goodness. Is that good facetiousism? (laughs) Yeah, you were were very, very uh, good in the facetious department. You know, it's not fascism. Uh, no. Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Why are you saying I'm fascist? <laughs> I can see it now. Well, we all know people, uh, close friends and relatives, who so embrace the Obama Kool Aid. They, they drink the the Obama Kool Aid. You know, why is it so? I, I I'm going to offer some suggestions, but I, I'd like your input, Ari. Here's my my thought that they they embrace the Obama Kool Aid and they are ready to even uh, push forward this culture of fear. They'll say, what are you talking about, Barack? But it doesn't give them pause whatsoever, the IRS emails. Nothing. It it doesn't dawn on them, because they have limited memory, apparently. They they have selective memory, or they're unable to connect the dots. 
it doesn't dawn on them that if this were to be a Republican administration doing exactly the same thing, targeting liberal groups, that their heads would roll. There would be calls for impeachment and, and maybe likely would get their impeachment. But it's, uh, it's okay when the liberals do because it's always for a good cause, I, I guess. But what is it about them that, that cannot accept that there is something wrong going on in, in, the, state of dark, uh, in the state of Denmark? Why? Um, this is a, a reference to Hamlet, of course. There's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Why can't, why can't the liberals at least say from time to time, uh, that gives me pause. I think, is it because he's the first black president and they want so much to be able to say that they supported the first black president? Is that it? Well, there's two dynamics at work and they're both based on addictive personalities. So essentially, the people like that essentially have a big drug problem. Um, the first is cult behavior. It feels good to be a member of a cult. It feels good. Even if it didn't feel... Did you ever, have you ever smoked a cigarette? No. Have you ever known people who are addicted to cigarettes? Of course. Right. If you've smoked a cigarette before, and I've smoked one or two before, I've tried them, it's not a pleasant experience. Yeah, the it seems... The first thing you ask yourself <coughs> when you hack and wheeze is, why would anyone ever do this? Right. Regularly. Right. And the answer is, well, they did it enough to get past the initial pains to the point where it became habit. So even though you and I think in terms of, God, who would ever join a cult? What an idiot thing to do. Well, once you've joined it and you've worshipped a few times and it feels good after a few times, then it just feels like the thing to do. And you develop a pattern of essentially addiction to it where now the idea of leaving it, like quitting smoking, is incredibly discombobulating. Yeah. Okay. So, you know so what? that's that's the first reason, and then the second reason is because that's related to the first. Most people who fall into addictive personalities have an emptiness of their soul. That's why they call like alcoholism and drug addiction diseases of the soul. Obama to them made them feel like something in their soul was getting filled. So when you and I come around with, you realize he's a schmuck. We're criticizing the thing that fills their soul. I think you might be onto something here. Um, it is. Uh, it doesn't actually fill their soul, but they feel it. They feel it, right? Of course. Just things. like 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 uh, the cigarettes don't don't fill their soul either. I, you can apply the same argument, and I think I think it's uh, very adept because you and I are also fascinated by these these Americans, not Muslims, Americans who embrace the Palestinian uh, terrorists. They it it must. This explains that. I cannot understand these people that are so anti-Israel when everything about Israel is obviously uh, the very thing that they would supposedly embrace. Did the, you see that one, the uh, one with the shirt that says "Queers for Palestine"? Yeah, that <laughs> it's weird. What you're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly weird. Like, why would you do that? Why would you? Why, if you were gay, if you're a woman, if you're a minority, if you're any other religion other than Muslim, why would you support the Arab enemies of Israel and not Israel itself? And the, the, the way you described it, I think, you, I think we finally got there. It's, a, it's an addiction of the cult. And it feels good. Uh, they, it gives them a sense of purpose. Yeah, it doesn't feel good right away. But after doing it a few times, it right. starts to feel It's addictive. Good. And, yeah. and for whatever reason, their association with the underdog, their associations that, that build up with everything else, 
Uh, they feel that they're doing good for the world, which is itself its own addiction. Uh, I think that they have a hard time leaving it. The, the notion that everything that they've fought for is wrong is very hard. Just like and 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 actually harder than quitting smoking. Right. Harder I, than uh, give, abandoning alcohol altogether. Yeah, it, because it's even more. We say of the in the recovery business, or they say that it's a disease of the soul, but it really isn't. I mean, alcohol is a physical thing. It does affect the brain, et cetera, et cetera. But this is straight to the soul. I had a wonderful book. I saw it out in my grandparents' library because my grandparents came to America, and they had these wonderful ancient books, some of them in the, this one in English, called The History of the Jewish People. And I found it fascinating. It was published in the, like, the 1930s, and it essentially predicted the Holocaust. And I put this in my own book collection and put it somewhere safe because I knew it would be something I'd want to pass to my children, not some other cousins in the family. So I purloined it. And in the book, it talks about the different pogroms and, and persecutions, but it talked about them with a very interesting word that I didn't understand at the time when I was like 9, 10, 11, 12 years old when I first read it. The term was excesses. And the excesses at this pogrom or the excesses of that, well, I understand it now. Now that I could put in context excessive behavior, excessive gambling, excessive drinking, excessive partying, you know, when you see, you know, the, you know, teenage excess of, or college age excess of irresponsible behavior in that the pogrom of the, of the Jewish pale in the area of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia today, which was the pale, was when the perfectly nice men and women who were peasants and workers, the non-Jews in the area, would get a little sauced and decide, ah, it's time to have a pitchfork and, and torch party at the Jews' expense. And let's explode with this behavior that these normally moral people, and, the, and remember, these are not people of the modern age polluted by rock music or other cultural rock that we look at, online pornography, whatever it is. These are people from hundreds of years ago. No, I understand. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's a question of... Um Look, I think, I think your point about the cult is a good one. And uh, I, I think it explains the anti-Semitism that we're seeing. It's, it's an addictive thing and to do. it's an explosion of expression that feels good when they're doing it, even though it goes against every reasonable value. Well, it, yeah. It's, it's, it, look, at nighttime sometimes I get such cravings that I, I have to have, have to have something sweet, right? I don't have an alcohol problem. I don't have a cigarette problem. I have a sweet problem. Or maybe a, 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 salt, a saltine-type problem, you know, with chips and such. Uh, I crave it, and I just can't control myself. It's not a good thing. It's not logical in many ways, but obviously it's a nutrition issue. That, Better than the beating up some Jews, so... That's right. Well, <laughs> but, but for, for them, the, the issue of beating up some Jews and being anti-Semitic, generally speaking, or taking very rapidly anti-Israel positions, I, I think that explains it. Yes. I, I think it explains it very well. Well... Uh, and that's um, that's my fear. I guess we're living in a in a world where this addictive the, the addiction of the cult uh, prevails. It can prevail, and it's always rearing its ugly head. It's not a historical thing. It's it needs to be fought all the time. And it's, when I say it, it is historical, of course, I'm saying it, but it's not only in the in the past. It's it's there. It's it's part. It's there as alcohols. Alcoholism will always be there. It's there as drug addiction will always be there. And we have to, to fight against it. We have to recognize it and fight it. 
wherever we can. Dennis Prager here. If you have a business or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you had a case involving a $220,000 promissory note and you won a trial, but later discovered that the defendant had transferred all his assets? Dennis, when judgment debtors don't want to pay, they may shift assets over to their relatives, asking them to hold them till the coast is clear. How did you get the payment? The defendant had transferred title to two commercial buildings. We convinced them to admit it was an illegal transfer. That led to a great settlement with guarantees from relatives with penalties. And don't you know, they're making payments every month on time like clockwork. I'll say another success. I trust Barack Lurie with my own legalities. Call him at 866-575-8111. That's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right, Barack Lurie at Lurie and Seltzer. 866-575-8111. And now listen to the Barack Lurie Show Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. here on AM870, The Answer. tremendous amount of really strange behavior in the Hamas world and the Arab world. Among other things, <clears throat> it's now coming to light, and apparently Ari corrected me that this actually happened before, but this is the first time I'm learning of it. Uh, the, uh, the bad guys are really quite intrepid and resourceful when they are uh, engaging in their suicide bombs, uh, suicide bombing. And the latest tactic that they're doing, and they're showing great videos of this, uh, is uh, dressing up like uh, very religious Jews or what we call Hasidic Jews, you know, the ones with the really dark coats and the, the black hats and the curly hair, <clears throat> and, then, uh, and then blowing themselves up. So they're, they're dressing up like Hasidic Jews and that, you know, in order to then detonate themselves in, in front of a large crowd. This is uh, the latest and greatest from uh, the religion of peace. <clears throat> um, really quite an extraordinary thing when you think about it. There is, it is almost impossible to think of anything that they won't do, right? I mean, when you think about that kind of behavior, that kind of unmitigated gall, and uh, remember that phrase because we're going to be using that in a moment. Uh, when you think of that kind of unmitigated gall, you think, what else are they going to come up with? At, at what level do they say, man, that ain't cool. <laughs> Let's not do that. We, we are, uh, we're, after all, we're Hamas. You know, we don't have that low a standard. The question is, how low will you go? How, uh, I mean, they obviously are very interested in maiming as many children and babies and elderly people as they can, right? We know that. Uh, that to them brings them great joy. And they will share lollipops and other sweets uh, in the streets of Gaza and the West Bank when they are able to kill little babies. So when, you, when that's your standard, uh, do you ask yourself, is there anything below that that I won't do? What is it? I just, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. Now, when you're analyzing which group you wish to support, the Israelis on the one hand, the democratic country, or the uh, very violent and uh, undemocratic enemies of Israel, particularly Hamas for this uh, day and age, do you, does that enter into your calculus? Do you say to yourself, well, here's one group that has absolutely no standards, 
And here's another group that apparently does. Now, does that mean that Israel um, never makes a mistake when it goes in and uh, tries to defeat the bad guys and that from time to time they'll have collateral damage and might even kill a small child? <clears throat> of course that's possible, and it has happened in the past. But guess what? It's happened in every single war in history, including the good war, which we know as World War II. Uh, that, that has happened time and time again. War is not a clean enterprise. War is not perfect. But there's a very big difference between going into an area and uh, collaterally uh, killing some children uh, by mistake and going into uh, an area and purposely killing children. Uh, and in fact, trying to kill more children than you, than you uh, are trying to kill soldiers. So that's the difference between Israel and its enemies. It's really, it's really plain and simple. Here's another difference that I want people to understand. Uh, and Ari, I think you mentioned this at a, at a podcast or two ago. The Israelis, uh, they have the muscle and the power to completely wipe out all of Gaza. They could, they could wipe out Gaza within an hour, right? I mean, it, it could, they've got a fantastic air force. They could do the equivalent of napalming all of Gaza and leveling it to the ground literally within an hour. I'm not, I'm not speaking in hyperbole. In an hour, they could do this. So if you believe that the Israelis are so evil that they are willing and desire to uh, perpetuate a genocide upon the people in Gaza and that they are excited about killing little babies and such, if that's your belief, then why wouldn't this monstrous enterprise known as Israel completely annihilate Gaza in the one hour that I just mentioned, right? Why would it risk its own soldiers uh, and uh, suffer its wounded as it has? It could completely wipe out everything. It could, it could get rid of all the tunnels, <clears throat> all the bad guys, and also eliminate all the rockets that are out there within one hour. But it doesn't. Think about that. Or as my seventh grade history teacher once said, why don't you put that in your pipe and smoke it? <laughs> okay. Can you, can you smoke that? Can you figure that out? Riddle me this, Batman, and so forth. Now, I look at the you know, extraordinary evil that I'm seeing in the Facebook postings that I'm getting about what's happening in, in, uh, among the, the Palestinians themselves, among the Arabs themselves, not just in, in the Palestinian territories, but also in Syria and otherwise, uh, how they are burying people alive. Um, and if you're gay, well, then, you know, forget about it. I mean, first they torture you, and then you have this utterly gruesome death. Um, it's... Uh, it's really a horrific, horrific area, a uh, horrific neighborhood, this, this town called the Middle East. And Israel is the one spot where there's some light, where there's joy and um, progress and a, a, an icon of Western civilization. It's there. But it's too easy to, to uh, simply point to Israel somehow because the Arabs point to Israel. The Arabs have no light upon themselves. They never look inward. They never study what's actually happening in their own lands. And what's happening in their own lands is quite horrific. So it leads Ari and I to our next point, because we are seeing so much evil in the Arab world 
that Ari came up with an idea, and I think we, we need to explore it. <clears throat> and that is, we need to award the, the worst, most horrific leader out there. And we have many standards by which we are going to, uh, to decide the, the worst leader out there. Among them, and, uh, and Ari, I think you'll, you'll add you know, after my, my points perhaps, among them, of course, is the number of murders that uh, you've effectuated, your ability to deceive your, uh, your own people and, of course, the world around. Um, and then the, uh, another factor is what uh, Ari calls unmitigated gall and shamelessness. I like that a lot. That's the phrase I asked you to remember. And then uh, treating us, how, how, how capable you are of treating the rest of the world like we're stupid. Have I gotten most of them? All right. I just thought of one. Yeah, tell me. And this expands the scope. Um, oh, you don't have to do that. Oh, okay. Just put it there and it'll work. Um, the uh, squalor that you keep your own people living in. Ah, yes. While constantly promising them progress, utopia, a better life for you and me, kumbaya. Yeah. Uh, you know, Robert Mugabe comes to mind. To <laughs> I that see. One. Yeah. That's right. Um, but, but these are the, and, and as we talk this through, I'm sure we'll find out, oh, here's another one. Uh, the relics that your um, junta and regime and uh, revolution has destroyed, like the Cultural Revolution or what ISIS did to uh, Jacob, uh, Jonah's tomb or what um, uh, the Taliban did to those uh, thousand-year-old Buddhas in Afghanistan. You know, what, what value of antiquities and museum pieces have you utterly destroyed what has been lost because of you? All right, I like those. So those like are it. other those, factors too. Those are two very good additional factors. Very. And here's one more: your uh -huh. ability. How effective are you at rewriting the past? Oh, that's good. That's very important. As I wish. Said, I wish I thought of that. Then. Yeah, as they all said in the old Soviet Union, uh, you never know what's going to happen yesterday. <laughs> that's good. Or uh, yeah, that, that's that, that's the best phrase. That's that's really good. You never know what's gonna happen. Oh man, that's good. Um, all right, so let's let's take those factors. <clears throat> and now we're gonna apply them. And I I am going to um, you know obviously the the, the obvious ones kind of come forth right. There's Hitler. There's Stalin. There's Pol Pot. Uh, and so on. Yeah, but like wine connoisseurs, we like to find some mm -hmm. off-label gems yes. that are lower in someone's dustbin that might not have been explored, like, say, you know, Chateau Moton Rothschild. Ceausescu, Idi Amin, of course. Uh, there, there are some real bad guys out there. Uh, but, you know, the problem is that when you're, if you factor in the millions of people that they've uh, caused to, to die, then Hitler and Stalin certainly... Uh, and, and Mao certainly uh, are heavily weighted in that department. Yeah, but, but that's a, but that's only one of the of the seven or so departments. So we do give it weight, but it's not everything, my friends. It's not everything, because Charles Manson, of course, he's a horrific man. But he only killed, let's say, ten or so people, which is a lot of people for a mass murder. He's a pretty evil guy, and in uh, almost every other respect of the six other or so factors that we're talking about. He did pretty well in yeah. terms of the of the the Academy Awards of, of uh, villains, <laughs> right? right? And, and if he he was lacking only in say Bill Ayers' ambition to conquer a country and then implement the plan on a mass scale, yeah. By that criteria, Bill Ayers is one of the worst people. Unfortunately, 
due to being a, a hippie and having flaky people around him, he wasn't able, thank God, to succeed in his revolution, to be in the position. Right. And, but the funny thing is, had he actually been tagged with one murder, then he would be a Charles Manson. Yes. That's the amazing thing. He tried. That's the amazing thing, and he didn't. It didn't succeed, and now he's he's elevated to this extraordinary uh, status. Perhaps uh, Bill Ayers may, may be the winner, or at least a runner-up in he this is department. Close. I mean, if you think about it, Hitler is a failed artist. Charles Manson is a failed musician, and Bill Ayers is a failed Hitler and Charles Manson. All right. You know, in a weird kind of convoluted way. All right. I'm going to nominate some people. I'm I'm now the Academy uh, of, of Best Villains. And I, uh, you know, I'm giving out the telephone call at five o'clock in the morning to all the uh, nominees, and uh, I'm going to give you out. Really want to wake these people up? <coughs> That's right. Yeah, good point. No, I want to. Well, these people love love the attention. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to throw out a few of them. Uh, the obvious ones are Hitler, Mao, uh, Stalin, Pol Pot, Ceausescu, Idi Amin, and uh, and so on. However, what about <clears throat> Yasser Arafat? I think uh, he should also be on the list as well. He's a remarkably talented man. Uh, and, and by the way, another factor that we should add in is the amount of wealth that you're able to steal from other people, for, for the rest of the world, right? Especially in charitable giving from those with good intentions. <laughs> See, it's one thing to just raid your own treasury. Right. But can you raid the treasury of, of benevolent organizations that intend to do nothing but feed, clothe, and house your own people? Right. That's... The right, Arafat was amazing in that. Yeah, see, and, and Arafat here was much better than Hitler. Hitler simply went ahead and conquered lands to steal their gold and other wealth, right, and their art. He didn't pretend that he was doing anything other than stealing their wealth. And by doing so, he amassed a fortune for the German army and was able to enlarge his army. By contrast, Arafat uh, managed to fool people into paying him a lot of money so that he could enlarge his army and his terrorist ways. Uh, all, all the while making those people think that they're doing good. That's the amazing thing. I mean, Hitler never set up a four, uh, you know, what do you call it, 501c3 for purposes of helping his Nazi army or anything of the equivalent. But Arafat, he did that masterfully. I mean, the genius of Arafat, and I think, I think if, if, if this is a Lifetime Achievement Award, yes. you look at the different, like if this was Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> you have to look at City Lights and Modern Times and, you know, The Great Dictator and uh, the, the, the Gold Rush and the Kid and whatever. But, so if we're going to do that, we need to take some snapshots of Arafat's career, including, of course, the famous UN speech with the, the schmata on his head and the sunglasses and the finger. Uh, but there's one thing that stands out that's just so amazing to me about Arafat. Let's go back in the Wayback Machine to 1990-1991, the first war in Iraq, the one over Kuwait. As a diversionary tactic, Saddam Hussein, who should be on this list and deserves discussion too, uh, launches Scud missiles at Israel that so many Israelis are afraid have chemical weapons on it. The Bush administration threatens Israel to not retaliate, afraid their precious coalition, in which the Saudis gave 20 troops or something, might fall apart. The Palestinian uh, the PLO at the time, is cheering the Scud missiles. I remember. Falling on Israel. Yeah. 
A year and a half later, Bill Clinton is on office. It's 1993, <clears throat> and they shake the for the Oslo Accords and appoint Arafat, the guy who led the cheering on the Scud missiles, as the head of this new Palestinian Authority quasi-government organization. How did he do that reversal? Yeah, yeah. Well, what they tried to and then Rabin shakes his hand. <laughs> Wow. Well, yeah, I saw Rabin shaking his hand, and he and it was not a firm handshake by any stretch of the imagination. Look, I mean, you're, you're, that, that, that's one of the factors. This is why I think the Lifetime Achievement Award, as you put it, is is so appropriate to give to Yasser Arafat because of his ability to fool so many people and to revive himself uh, over and over again. Remember that in 1980, taking the way back machine, if you will. Uh, as you said, way back the Wayback Machine was a, a reference to that movie. Um, uh, Back to the Future. No, the Wayback Machine. Time Machine. Yeah, there's a time machine in one of these movies. It's a cartoon movie uh, that uh, my kids love. It's a fairly recent movie. It came out about six months ago. It doesn't matter. It's a Wayback Machine, and they they go back in time and they 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 kind of mess it up in the past so that the future is going to be ruined. And same idea as Back to the Future, right? But anyway. Taking the Wayback Machine to 1982 during the Lebanon War. <clears throat> the Lebanon War, this is the war that Israel um, went into Lebanon in order to get rid of the PLO because the PLO was, had basically taken over the Lebanon and was using Lebanon as a launching pad for strikes and terrorist attacks. Israel went in with Ariel Sharon uh, to uh, attack and they successfully got rid of the PLO. It was actually a very successful war. Uh, the Shabra and Shatila camps became a scandal for Israel. Uh, it it was, had nothing to do with uh, what Israel had done. There was a, there was a ref- the Arabs themselves had killed the, uh, the, the victims in the Shabra and Shatila camps. But because they wanted to blame Israel, somehow they accused Israel of uh, not being uh, watchful enough on the situation and that they were somehow tagged with responsibility for that. It was actually like ISIS. Israel pulled out because the world insisted. Right. And then after they pull out, the world says, you mean you pulled out? You didn't protect them? Right. Yeah. It was some, somehow <laughs> it was our obligation. Yeah. So anyway, that, but the point is, because that's a, a side story at this point, the point is that the Lebanon war was actually very successful. And it did get rid of, it completely destroyed the PLO. It made them move to Tunisia, I think. It, I'm getting there. Oh, okay. It, the, the, uh, they were forced to go to Tunisia. They had... No other place, no, no other Arab country wanted them. So they go to Tunisia, and um, they're, they're so poor at this point that their rent is becoming due. <laughs> I mean, literally, the rent that they, they pay for their headquarters, and they can't pay the rent. That, that's, this is how bad it is, all right? And just then, just at that moment, Israel uh, works up a relationship with the the PLO through the, what's, what was then called the Oslo Peace Accords. That was about 10 years later in 1993. And the, what's the idea there? The, the idea is that uh, we're now going to have this, this peace with this severely weakened uh, group called uh, the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And it's going to be with the, the, the title head of Arafat there. And he's going to be so grateful to us, the Israelis, that he'll do our bidding for us and he'll be, he'll have to be peaceful. Okay. So Arafat, you know, he's like the Forrest Gump of, of, of the Arab world in that way. Although far more clever than Forrest Gump ever could have been. Just circumstances just arose in his favor. And next thing he knows, he's in the West Bank and he's 
He's king of the world all of a sudden, and he believes himself that he's, he's become victorious over the Israelis. This is completely the opposite of the, the impression the Israelis have, which is we're bringing in Arafat because he's so weakened and so chastened uh, from the whole process of how much he's been beaten up. But no, <laughs> Arafat now is the hero of the Palestinians, and he actually uh, creates a situation where where they, they, there's a second intifada, far more vicious than the first intifada, which is a, a intifada means an uprising, if you will. Um, and uh, he's completely intransigent. He's completely stubborn in every way that you can imagine. But that's, that's Arafat for you. In the meantime, he's managed to fool people to give him, that's right, $3 billion. $3 billion was his net worth at the time that he died. And just to give you a perspective of what $3 billion is, that's more than you and I, Ari, make in a whole year combined. I think that's more than I make in a day. Yeah. It's just, just to keep it in perspective. That's more than I make in an hour. <laughs> that's like a lot of money. That's a lot of money. All right. Anyway, so you get and, the and, and you said something very important. They gave it to him. Yeah. He didn't earn it. <laughs> they gave it to him. That's right. Who's giving us money? How about no one? Right. No one's giving us the money. No one. But he managed to uh, he managed to steal so much money that uh, that the the Western countries were feeding into the Palestinian communities because they wanted to rebuild Palestine, right? And I'm using Palestine uh, purposefully because there is no such thing as uh, Palestine. The, the Western world thought that they were giving money to this to this country that was going to be Palestine, and so uh, but but guess who took it? Uh, a man named Yasser Arafat. And uh, over time, nobody ever asked for the accounting. Um, you know, as a lawyer, I always ask, you know, it's one of the things is where's the money going to in, in, for, the, for the client? I mean, they come to me very often because there's no accounting going on and they want me to help them retrieve the money that was stolen uh, from them. So this is what Arafat had done so brilliantly. And in addition to brilliantly stealing people from uh, stealing money from people that had no suspicion that they were. Uh, being stolen from. In addition to that, um, he made he 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 made it so that they would never even ask, "Where's the money?" Not 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 for a moment did anyone ask that question. It's, it, it was incredible, and he managed to kind of keep this rhythm going, saying, "If only we had more money. If only we had more money." It was like the L.A. school board. Every dollar they get, he hides and then claims poverty that they need more money, and yeah. he gets it. Then he steals it and says, "We need more money." Darn it! I was going to make that analogy that second. I'm it was sorry. coming. No, no, no. I'm glad that you thought of it too. It, it, it's exactly like that. The more money we give to the unions, the public school unions in, in particular the more they, they insist uh, that they need more money. It's, yes. And I, they're so handsomely paid as it is. Um, and then they, they still need more money, you understand. Anyway, uh, this is what uh, the Arafat had done so brilliantly. And uh, we have to give him credit as a villain. It's just extraordinary. Then, of course, you have to also uh, give credit where that he's responsible for so many killings, not before, not just before he became the leader of the Palestinian territories, but even after, until his very dying day, and he was constantly he just got away with. That's what I'm saying. Scott, Scott free. He was constantly killing people, torturing people, um, anybody that he suspected to be an informer, he killed them, and with no accountability whatsoever. It never got out into the media. It just was constant 
This, this guy ruled with such brutality, and nobody knew about it. Now, Hitler, one could argue, uh, was the master of this because you know, he managed to kill millions upon millions of Jews and other people. Um, and with very few exceptions, the world just didn't know until the day that we arrived um, with our troops in these concentration camps. And then the world had to know. It was open exposure all of a sudden. But up to that point, uh, Hitler was a master at uh, hiding all this information. The final solution was, was a fairly secretive solution. People were disappearing, but, you know, no one asked any questions, and that was that. Yeah. The same thing was true with Yasser Arafat's victims. Um, he managed to just suppress everybody. And I think we have to talk about the natural connection between Hitler and Arafat, which is Haj al-Humayn al-Husseini, the former uh, Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Arafat's cousin, and the guy who conspired with Hitler to come up with the idea for the death camps. Oh, I didn't know that. Hitler's, Hitler's racialist ideas, his Margaret Sanger plan, if you will, was to ship each of the world's races back to their native lands. His plan was to deport all the Jews to the Middle East and ah. let the hostile Arabs slaughter them. Haj Husseini goes to see Hitler in Berlin in 1942, I believe, and says, don't send them to us. We'll have to slaughter them. Slaughter them yourself. And then Hitler gave the plan to his, his uh, you know, different his henchmen, support, yeah. henchmen, and they came up with the, the idea for the gas chambers and the firing squads and the mass graves and all that stuff. But uh, the, the idea for the mass murder of the Holocaust came from the Middle East from Arafat's own blood. Yeah. It, it's the fun. irony is unbelievable. It's full circle. Um, I wouldn't say it's irony. I, I would just say it's, you know, this, this incredible coincidence uh, this incredible relationship that uh, feeds upon itself. History um, is all connected. Well, I think is the what you're saying is liberal Jews who react with horror to anything Nazi embraced Arafat. Oh, yeah, that, as, that, as that is that is ironic. 1990s. Yeah, that is that part's ironic. And then continued to Let, vote let's, for Bill Clinton when he was giving Arafat everything. Let's move on to the other issues that uh, that they're dealing with. One of the things we said is um, your relationship with the UN. <laughs> you. You can't be a good villain today, folks, without having a very good relationship with the UN. I mean, that's if you, if you were learning how to be a good villain, uh, chapter two or three of the book would be the titled "Your Relationship with the UN: A Must." <laughs> okay, <laughs> so you you can't you. <laughs> and part of that would be to say, look, you know, we have to show how how uh, disenfranchised you are uh, in the world how you're a victim uh, among the other nations, and that you need money from the U.N. And, and you'll, you'll find ways to get the U.N. to give you money, whether it's through UNICEF or a World Health Organization, something, some technique by which you can extract money <clears throat> from the U.N. so that you can line your own pockets, of course, at the end of the day, and, and also build up your terrorist empire. Remember, folks, remember, my dear villain friends, the UN is your friend. <laughs> okay, think of it as their your resource. <laughs> We're, the UN is there to help you. you okay, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool, my my villainous friend. 
take advantage of what's available to you. You need to write the little pamphlet brochure that's given to every villain. Yeah. You know, you and the UN. <laughs> that's that's a right. A loving relationship. <laughs> <laughs> the pamphlet would read, so you want to be a villain? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> How can we help you? Right. Yes, we can. Simple steps. Uh, so you, you have the, the relationship with the UN is very, very important. And Arafat, really, he, he did a brilliant job there. We, we have to give him, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, he was an 11, uh, a really solid 11. I mean, he, he, was, he just knew exactly what to say at the right moment, at the right time. I mean, it's a gift. He had a gift. And it's not a gift of gab. He just he knew what the world uh, was, was uh, needing, and he knew how to play the underdog, and he used the U.N. remarkably to his advantage. I mean, th- that is what the U.N. is there for, my friends. It is there to be a great catalyst for the villain. It has no purpose whatsoever for good nations whatsoever. It is, it is there to assist evil. Yeah, thank you. You you, you are your Hutus, and you want to slaughter some Tutsis? Don't worry. How can Those we help UN you? Troops are not going to get in your way. That's right. And they will stay at the hotel, <laughs> and they'll assist you in the raping of the women around you. Yeah, they'll tell you where they are. Make sure they're disarmed. <laughs> That's right. And just you can go in and kill them. Just give them, give them a couple of brewskis. But th- this this is what the UN does, and and mind you, the UN of course was responsible for the greatest uh, financial scandal in world history known as the Oil for Food Program, but I digress. Um, Saddam Hussein also used, for, for that end, the United Nations in a brilliant way. Um, he, he was the one that created the Oil for Food scandal. I mean, it was, it was a brilliant tactic on his part, and uh, it allowed him to not only align his own pockets dramatically, turning the entire... How, how do you, what's that expression? Making uh, uh, lemonade out of lemons, right? I mean, that's what he did. He took the whole sanctions... Uh, effort against him into something that would would make him a, a billionaire many times over. That's what he did. And not only that, but in the process also um, uh, made sure to isolate Germany and Russia from any antagonism toward him whatsoever. So he actually allied them with him against the United States. It was brilliant. Just, just I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, and I think one of the points that you're making about the UN that's so dramatic is we're not talking about countries like Qatar or the UAE or Dubai, uh, you know, coming to your aid. You know, because these are, you know, ethnic brethren. We're talking about Sweden. Yeah. Why would Sweden ever side with a PLO or PA or Hamas or Saddam Hussein? What did they have in common? Yeah. Aren't they pacifists? Yeah, supposed, yeah supposed to, they're supposedly uh, are pacifists. All right, so we have the other things we want to talk about, and we'll talk about it briefly uh, because the, the, the points kind of speak for themselves. As a good villain, you must treat your uh, audience like they're stupid. And you must also fool them. You must get them to believe that they are stupid themselves, that you know better than they do. And part of that process is rewriting history, as you said. And uh, rewriting history is pretty easy these days. Why? Because you have complete control over the education system. And not only that, but you also have a, a, a very liberal world out there that is going wholeheartedly with you in the changing of history. They want... Uh, so the, the history that's being changed is the history of America itself, its role in the world, so, so that America is perceived to be an imperialist nation that's seeking conquest of its uh, neighbors and the rest of the world. Likewise with Israel, uh, it, it purports to have Israel be this, this nation that just slaughtered 
this country called Palestine with a bunch of millions of Palestinians who are now refugees and who are only seeking their return back to their native land. Uh, you know, it's, it's all a lie. Nothing of the sort happened. As I, as I say, you know, let me get this straight. What powerful army did the Jews have uh, after the Holocaust, all these emaciated people? Um, can, you, can you tell me what this was all about? My father was in the Independence War, by the way, the very first war with the Arabs. And he can tell you, <laughs> we, they barely had uniforms. They had to borrow planes from Czechoslovakia. Uh, they, didn't even, they didn't even have bombs that had, uh, uh, sorry, uh, airplanes that could drop bombs. So what they would do is they would just take hand grenades and, and throw it from the sky. <laughs> That's what they did. <laughs> that, that, those were the bombs. Idea. Yeah, it was very creative. And um, at one point, my dad tells me a funny story about how this one guy had to take, uh, he had to have a bowel movement, shall we say, in the airplane. And he just really had to go. And so they didn't know what to do because um, so, they didn't have a bathroom on the plane. So, but they didn't have a newspaper. So what, what the guy did, and he said, well, you know, here's what we're going. We're flying over the bad guy's land. So I'll, I'll just, you know, do my business on top of this newspaper. We'll, we'll roll it up like a bag, and uh, we'll dump it down there, okay? They'll deal with it, <laughs> okay? Uh, now, unfortunately for them, because of the way the wind was and such like that, it, it, the engine sucked it in. <laughs> so it, it didn't ruin the airplane or anything, but they... They, they landed and they just said, what, why does it smell so bad? <laughs> sure enough, it was because it, it got stuck on the plane. But it was hysterical. But that's, that's the nature of the original army of Israel, uh, as it were. I mean, it was just a, a hodgepodge of different factions that eventually galvanized and became the world's best army, maybe 50 or so years later. But uh, in the beginning, uh, my friends, th- there was, this was, this was, it was the, the, the dichotomy between the Arab army <clears throat> And the Israeli army at the time in the Independence War was greater than the dichotomy between the British army and the American army during the time of the Independence War, of of the American Independence War. So anyway, the the history, you can change in any day you like, right? And and we see this, you know, from the useful idiots who tell us the history to us of of Israel, who don't know even how big Israel is. They don't know how, how large the enemies countries are of Israel. Uh, they don't know the population ratio between the Israel population versus the Arab population. They don't know anything. They, they, don't, they don't even know that Israel is a democracy and the only democracy in the entire region. They, they, don't, they don't have a single frame of reference. All they know is the sound bites that the Arabs give them. And the arm media then repeats with glee. With like glee. Brian Williams. That's week. right. Yeah, this is, this, this, is, this is what they do. So you're a useful idiot if you believe in this stuff. But all that's happening is people are just changing history for you. And, and we, I say we, the, the Americans, the gullible Americans, um, just soak it up because we are led to believe that when somebody tells us something, our first instinct is to, to, is to believe them. And it's not that way in the Arab world. In the Arab world... It's just, you know, you say what you can say, and if people believe you, so much so much better for you. That's the way it works over there. And I, I don't mean that as a, uh, as a racist comment or anything else. It's not racist. It's culturalist. That's the way it works over there. Just in the same way that, that you know, they prefer baba ganoush and, and hummus uh, in that area of, of, the, of the world. And they have different customs in terms of how they uh, wear their clothes. Right? I mean, no one denies that. 
um, they wear the kifar and, and the women wear the burkas and so on like that. that. That's a difference. That's a cultural difference. But there's also a cultural difference in the way they view truth. We view truth as, as something that someone tells them. We assume that they're telling the truth until we can prove that they're wrong. And even then, we, we, we kind of go in our own minds kicking and screaming about it. We, we, we just, we're just flummoxed when we cannot square the facts that the person is telling us. Right? But in, in the Arab world, they just say what they want to say. And, and if you believe it, well, then you're the fool. That's it. That's the way it works. Yeah, it's so amazing how so many lies are repeated by that part of the world. And then when you present to these people the truth, they act like you're the liar. It's, it's an amazing upside-down world. Yeah. It's, it, it's mind-blowing, actually. Yeah. And uh, another thing that's completely lost on people, and not to get into the weeds of it, but no one looks at the ratio of the other living in each of these places. In other words, in, in Israel, millions of Arabs go about their day living mm. fine, right? There isn't one Jew in Gaza. Why isn't Gaza criticized for being ethnically cleansed? Isn't ethnic cleansing and genocide a big deal to people? Yeah. And how did they make it Juden-free? Yeah. Well, they must have done something to do that. When, when Ari just said uh, Juden-free, which is, I think, I pronounced... free Jews. I, 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 I'm with you. I'm just going to clarify for the sake of the listener. Juden-free, it's actually pronounced Judenfrei, which means uh, free of Jews. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what Germany said about uh, its goal was to make Germany Judenfrei, which means to, to, free, to get rid of the Jews. And that's, that's what he means uh, in that context. And that's you know, what and, they did in Gaza. And you're absolutely right. This is what they did. And uh, whether it's by, by terror or otherwise, they managed to get rid of anybody that is not exactly like them. So, but nobody complains about that. Nobody. Uh, the final point that you mentioned... Uh, Ari, and then I think we'll wrap it up, is the ability of the villain to make his people live in squalor and at the same time believe in you as a leader. That, you have to be masterful. That is a balancing act like nobody's business, right? That's like Hugo Chavez, Robert mm-hmm. Mugabe mastery. Ma- uh, total mastery. Kim Jong-il right. mastery. Right. They make you, you feel that your squalor that you're living in is the responsibility of somebody else and they managed to galvanize your hate as a, as, as, a, uh, as a result. You've created that squalor yourself as the villain, and you managed to blame it on somebody else. Masterful. That, that, if you can do that, mwah, kudos to you, my villainous friend. Kudos to you. And Yasser Arafat, in this regard, he was a master. He, he did it so beautifully. Well, folks... I, I hope you've enjoyed this segment, but it is important to understand the villainous nature of, of these people and what it takes to be a great villain. And yes, we're, we're kind of taking this all tongue-in-cheek to some extent, but it also, uh, I think, it makes us all think about the, the realities of the day, what it takes to be a villain, and we see it time and time again uh, within the Arab world, North Korea, uh, in South America, you name it. This is what it takes. Let's, let us not be fools. This is Brooke Lurie. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.